It is such a joy to be back in this sanctuary again. It's been our pleasure to come here for several years to be with our dear friends, Bob and Joanne Howard. One of the blessings of our life has been for, to be under Bob's leadership in many places throughout the General Assembly and through Presbyterian gatherings all over this country. And he's had a great influence upon the, for the teaching of the gospel in many, many places, including right here in Wichita. So it is a joy and a privilege to stand in your pulpit today. Hear now the word of God. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from seeing him. He said to them, what is this conversation? What are you, this conversation that you're holding as you walk together? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know what has been happening there? And he said to them, what things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and in word before God and before all the people, and how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all of this, it's now the third day since all that happened. And moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us because they went to the tomb early in the morning, they did not find his body, and they came back saying they'd even seen a vision of some angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us, they went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have taught you. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them in the scriptures all these things concerning himself. So they drove near to this village of Emmaus, where they were going. He appeared to be going further, but, but they constrained him, saying, oh, oh, stay with us toward evening. The day is far now spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table, he took the bread, 
He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished before their eyes. They said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, when he opened to us all those scriptures? And they rose that same hour and they went back to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them who said, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. And then they told him what had happened to them on the road and how he was known with the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. We've been under Caesar's thumb for so very long, brutalized by his legions, robbed by our, from our livelihoods, prospering Rome by the sweat of our brow, betrayed by our own people, that, that high priest and his ecclesiastical entourage that, that traded their convictions for Pax Romana, Revenuers who collected more money than they should have for taxes. They paid Caesar his portion and then they pocketed the rest, leaving us a people impoverished by all of their wrongdoings. Politicians and their bought and paid for priests who have left us in the slew of despond and we have despaired, devoid of hope, until, until last week's ruckus that occurred on the road. Now we had heard stories of this prophet, this Jesus of Nazareth, for many months. Word was all over Galilee about the amazing things that he had done and the things that he had said. There were stories of his healings. There were massive food fests. There were incredible wedding wine. There, was, there were debates that left the scribes and the Pharisees just, just mumbling their words. And when he talked, when he taught, the people hung on to every word he said. It was as if these were not his words, but they were words from some authority far above us all. His teaching, his very life was bathed in the word of God. And when he appeared at the gates, Riding a colt, 
just as kings do, just as the prophet Zechariah said the Messiah would do. And when his disciples ripped off those branches from the palm trees and laid them on the ground before him, and we the people, we who had been enslaved by Rome for so very long, we were just, we just went wild. We who had suffered so much, now we saw him go into the temple and turn over those money changers' tables and, and he marched right by centurions where were hoisting their spears as if, as if they meant nothing to him. This just had to be the one. The one whom the prophets foretold our Savior, our Deliverer, the one who armed with the very power of God would send Caesar scurrying out of the prophets, out of the promised land. This was going to be our Moses. This was going to be our Joshua. This was going to be our mighty King David. Sure. He's the one. Now, we knew that he would face opposition. And it didn't take very long to surface. Those corrupt ecclesiastics. They were all over him. And isn't that always the way with organized religion, with the institutionalized church that, that accommodates to culture, that baptizes the powers that be, that, that sprinkle holy water on filthy rags? And so there they were, decked out in their ecclesiastical robes, plotting to get him stoned. They fired, tricked, Questions at him, questions with fish hooks that were designed to snare him into either blasphemy or treason. Well, and then there were those politicians playing musical chairs, dancing among changing power structures, anxious to please the rulers and the regulators and the and the, even the rabble from the mob. They kicked the can down the road. And then one of them ended up washing this indelible stain off his hands. And the people, oh, the people, feckless enthusiasts, shouting Hosanna in one breath and crucify him in the next. Only a macho Machiavellian Messiah could rule this crowd. Only one who could call down the fire of heaven and scorch everything that surrounds us. 
What we need, what we long for is a tyrannical power that will abolish these circumstances that have surrounded us and enslaved us because you see, there's where the problem is. Evil institutions, corporate depravity, misinforming media, structural inequities, the powers that be, eradicate them, mow them down. And the people will be free. The enemy is so well defined. The enemy is out there. Go get him, Messiah. But alas, this Jesus, he did not rise to that opportunity. He did not stand on that high mountain and command the kingdoms of this earl. He did not jump off the uh, pinnacle and land in the arms of the heavenly host. No, he didn't do any of these things. He did target evil, but, but not the evil that surrounds us. Not the evil that enslaves us, but the evil that is within us. He changed the focus from the evil out there to the evil in here, and then then instead of conquering it, he absorbed it. And he carried it, that soul-scorching, powerful evil. He carried it to a cross. where he was forsaken by his followers and by his friends, even by his God. And you, stranger, you who has just joined us on this road to Emmaus. You who have been in the city of Jerusalem in all this time, you seem not to even know of these tragic events. What planet have you been on? And scripture says of these two downcast travelers, their eyes were kept from seeing him. Note the syntax here. Their eyes were kept from seeing him. What is keeping those eyes closed? is blurring the vision. It's driven them out of focus. 
Well, for one thing is clear. Their predispositions, their own ideologies, their versions of history, their jaundiced memories, their prejudices, their own set of facts have occluded their sight. Often we see what we are predisposed to see, what we expect to see, what we choose to see. Senses, what we see, what we hear, are, are malleable. Now, these two men, they came out of a culture that had defined the Messiah. Oh, yes, the Messiah would come. All of Israel knew this. They expected it. They believed the prophecies that the Messiah would come. But what kind of Messiah did they expect to see? Was this not a Messiah of their own making? A political Messiah who would redeem what by their definition was wrong with their world. And if perchance they had the wrong diagnosis of their ills, what would that do to their prognosis? See, they had the facts. Oh, Scripture had been before them for more generations than they could count. They had the facts, but not the understanding. There's a big difference between knowledge and knowing. They could quote all the verses. They'd done so since childhood. But what they lacked was the gestalt, the configuration that those verses come together in a certain form wherein they bring meaning. They couldn't see the Messiah because the Messiah who came was not the Messiah they expected to see. And you see that in the, in the statement they made to the stranger, oh, but we hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. They wanted redemption, but they wanted it on their terms. And that's what they had prepared themselves to see. And their eyes were kept from seeing him. Let's go just a little step deeper here. We know what kept their eyes from seeing him, but there's another question here. Who kept their eyes from seeing him? Could it be God? Now, we know God has done that. 
kind of thing before. You remember? You remember who hardened the Pharaoh's heart? So might this be the case? That God in his ultimate wisdom allows us to live with the consequences of our self-imposed blindness. Permits us to live into those consequences that we in our distorted vision have brought about. in order that in the midst of the devastation and the wreckage of our ill-begotten agendas, we may be dismayed, disappointed, broken, because there is clarity in brokenness. When our self-centered dreams are crushed, then we may envision a future possibility. So is it possible that the Lord here keeps us from seeing until we first see the blind alleys that we have pursued. And their eyes were kept from seeing him. Let's go another step deeper. Could it be that the Lord keeps our eyes from seeing the whole truth because he knows we can't handle it. Now that's a countercultural thing to say. After all, that's an offense to inhabitants of a culture that, where we believe that knowledge is king. We inhabit an information age, driven age. We demand to know everything, everything, inside and outside the beltway. Who's the most important person in the crowd? It's the one who knows something the rest of us don't know. The person who has the inside source, the leaker, the tip, the scoop, the one who is first to break the news to everyone, the Beltway Pecking Order Awards top dog to the one who knows. So it is in this information-driven culture, we insist on peeling back every veil. We spurn those whom we declare ignorant. We applaud our technocrats and our experts and the science. We demand to know because knowledge is power. 
We split the atoms and the genes and we extract embryos from test tubes and we, and we anticipate future events by algorithms and we, and we reach out in every direction to know everything we can know and we install cameras on every street corner and we hack each other's computers and how's all that knowledge doing for us? Is it possible that we demand to know more than we can handle? We are, after all, creatures. And creatures are, by definition, limited. Might it be true that the Lord keeps us from seeing certain truths because he knows we don't have the capacity at that moment to handle them? Remember Moses? Remember when Moses said to God, I want to see you? Let me see you. Moses said, God said to Moses, look, Moses, if you saw me, you couldn't handle it. If you saw me, you would die. But I'll tell you what I'll do. You go get behind the cleft of this rock over here. And I'm going to let you just look through this crevasse. And I'm going to pass by. And I'm going to let you see me. I'm only going to let you see my backsides. Because, little man, you can't handle any more truth than that. Okay, now back to that Emmaus Road. Note what's happening to these travelers. Note the progression that's going on in their sight. First they encounter this, this stranger. And he draws out of them a recitation of all of their shattered dreams and their dismay and their broken hopes and, and their failed campaign to have a Messiah of their own making. And he draws all of this out of them and they pour it out to him. And they utter it forth as if it were a confession. And then, and then he begins to take them to Scripture bit by bit and piece by piece. He begins to teach and reframe their sight as they walk step by step along this road. And incrementally, peace, by peace, he fills them with a new vision, something they had not seen before, 
enough so that their hearts begin to burn within them. As he gives them this scripture, things begin to open up and something begins to stir within them to deliver in them a new set of expectations and then finally they get to the inn and they get to the table and he lifts that bread and blesses it and breaks it and gives it to them and recognizes. And so, fellow travelers, that is exactly what's going on with us. That's the way the gracious Lord deals with us. Much of this road we're walking on, this road of life that we traverse, it's veiled in mystery. Sometimes the fog around us is so thick, we think we can't see the next step in front of us. And we have more questions than we could have answers. But dear friends, there's someone walking on this road with us. This is not a lonesome road. There is a loving presence here. This all-knowing stranger who shares our steps. And as he walks with us, he reveals to us exactly what we need for each step along the way and not one tiny bit more. In incrementally, he opens our eyes to the light, not the whole light. We couldn't handle that. just enough for us to see the next step along the way. Just enough with the promise of a greater light that will come. Now, I want to share with you a passage of Scripture that uh, it is my favorite from 1 Corinthians. But I want you to listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in the light of your Emmaus road travels. Love. That, that is the stranger who has joined you. Love never ends. As for prophecy, it'll pass away. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. But when the perfect comes, that imperfect will pass away. For 
When I was a child, I, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways, for now we see only in a dim reflection as in a mirror. But then, we shall see face to face. Now, I know only in part, but then, then I shall understand, even as I have been fully understood, so faith, love, These three abide. But the greatest of these is love. Do you see it? There is a stranger walking beside you right now. And he's giving you just exactly what you need to see and can, can see at each step along the way. And with the eyes of faith, you know exactly who he is. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.